Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. everyone and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. My guest today is Stephen Graham Jones. He is the New York Times bestselling author of nearly 30 novels and collections, including The Babysitter Lives, Earth Divers, and My Heart is a Chainsaw. His work has been awarded four Bram Stoker Awards, two Shirley Jackson Awards, five This Is Horror Awards, and many, many more. His latest book is Don't Fear the Reaper. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Don't Fear the Reaper? Well, Don't Fear the Reaper, I mean, of course, it comes out of My Heart is a Chainsaw. It's um, Jade Daniels is the only slasher junkie in Proof Rock, Idaho, 8,000 feet up the mountain. Proof Rock is situated on Indian Lake, right across from Terra Nova, which is this the most gated community in America. You can only get to it by boat. It's for the 1% of the 1%. Halfway around the lake, there's a dam and there's Camp Blood, which is the site of a massacre 50 years ago. In the first installment, My Heart is a Chainsaw, Jade squares off eventually against, um, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it, against a slasher, you know? Yes, and, a slasher. Yeah. And um, she is slasher obsessed. She sees everything through the slasher, through slasher goggles. However, the second one is four years later and Jade is doing that thing. We I think we all do in our, in our early to mid 20s where we look back at who we were in high school and we're like, what were we thinking, you know? Mm. Um, and so she's not going by Jade anymore. Jade was a name she took for herself. But um, now in Don't Fear the Reaper, she's going by Jennifer, her born her born name. And um, and she's no longer putting on the raccoon eyes, a thick eyeliner. She's not coloring her hair with her mood, you know? Um, it's not that she is um, failing her younger self. She's just growing up, you know? Like, yeah. like we all think. Um, however, um, as much as she wants to move on past the slasher, there may be a slasher happening all around her and she's getting pulled right back in, you know? She sure is. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the name because that, when I started reading it, I was like, Jennifer. Okay. <laughs> and there is a scene at one point in the book between Jennifer and sin where Jennifer keeps calling her cinnamon and sin corrects her. And it reminded me a lot of a scene from my heart is a chainsaw where Jade is talking with Holmes and he keeps calling her Jennifer and she keeps yeah. telling him it's Jade. Was that, it was that like an intentional callback? Yeah, a little bit was names are a big thing in all, in all three of these installments um, names and like how you let people refer to you, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Like, like me growing up, I, I was born Steven, Steven with a PH. If, like you can hear the difference, you know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> my mom can hear the difference evidently, but um, um, anytime I was with my mother, and anybody called me Steve, then the whole world would stop. So she could jump down that person's throat and explain to her, this is not Steve, this is Steven. And you will only ever call him Steven from here on out, you know? So I kind of grew up always having that correction, like follow me around, but it also kind of, I don't know if empower is the right word, but it kind of taught me that you can, um, you don't have to submit to what other people think of you, you know? Um, yeah. And so that's, 
that's kind of what Jade is doing. She for a while in junior high, she becomes JD, and then she slips a couple more vowels in it and becomes Jade. She, which is not really a diminutive of Jennifer at all, you know. But right. um, but um, she's she's like trying to collect. She's trying to have power in like the one area that she might have power, you know. Yeah, her name. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of names, I've always wondered if the town of Prufrock, Idaho gets its name from the the Elliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, or if that's just a coincidence. Yeah. No, it, it definitely does. Um, I couldn't spell it the same as he does. Sure. <laughs> and But I really love the way that um, lots of these like high mountain um, communities come from mining, you know, like they were a boom town and then they kind of just get smaller and smaller through the decades. That's what Prufrock has done. But um, I was really fascinated with the way Proof Rock, of you know Jay, uh, the love song of Jay of, of Proof Rock, how that lines up with a mining community of Proof Rock. Mm. It just I, mm-hmm. I like the, I know, it felt like kismet or synchronicity or something, you know, serendipity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my heart is a chainsaw is, was told entirely through Jade's point of view. And don't fear the reaper. We see the story through the points of view of many characters. And I'm wondering if you can explain the decision for this shift in the storytelling. Yeah. Um, the first one, you're right. It's like there's a periscope over Jade's shoulder or ear that over reading her paper. So it's Jade, Jade, too. <laughs> Jade wall to wall, you know, and Jade, I love Jade like no one else. But I also understand that Jade can be a little bit overbearing, you know, <laughs> And and so I didn't want to like fatigue the reader. I didn't want the reader to have a chance to get tired of Jade, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Because Jade's also in the third one. You know, I guess that's hopefully it's not a spoiler, but Jade is in the third book too. Um, And uh, like maybe another way to say it is My Heart is a Chainsaw, that hot spotlight was trained on Jade every step she took. And what that meant was she had to be either at the center or have an angle on every key event in the story in the plot you know um that's what you have to do when you have when you're locked into one character's perspective however by you know flipping to third person and i was able to jump heads and my mm-hmm. you know my model for that um i guess it's two people in my model i when i wrote don't fear the reaper i was just out of reading Leverett mercury's lonesome dove again i try to read it every few years because i think it's one of the amazing novels and i'm um, also of course I've read all all of the Song of Ice and Fire by George Martin that are out sure. there, you know, and he does the jumping head heads thing too. And I mean, they're not the only two writers who do that, but they are two other writers who do it better than anybody, I think, you know. Yes. And um, and so I kind of just took what they were laying down and tried to do a pale imitation of it. You know, I mean, nobody can be those two guys; they're amazing writers, but I can try, you know. And so <laughs> that's what I was trying, and you know, also it, it was fun with Don't Fear the Reaper. Like with my heart as a chainsaw, I had like a long on ramp because I had to build the world for a long right. time. And with the second in a trilogy, which I'd never done before, I was like, hey, this world is built. I can just start dropping bodies and keep dropping them <laughs> all the way through, you know? <laughs> and that was really, really nice. Um, but I did realize that by jumping from head to head, what I was doing was I was still world building. I'm fleshing out mm-hmm. the computer. You know, I'm I'm giving alternate and sometimes contradictory perspectives on things that are going on. And that makes a place more real, I think. No, I agree. Yeah. Like with My Heart as a Chainsaw, everything we know comes from Jade and what Jay sees and what Jade knows. Mm -hmm. But there's things she doesn't know. Whereas with this, like you said, you can set up contradictory stories that the reader then has to kind of figure out like, who do yeah. I trust here? Do I trust anybody? What is happening? And yeah, it's awesome. 
I love that. You know, I think, you know, the, I wonder if I never thought about this, but um, Law and Order, you know, the series has been around since yeah. what, like 89 or 90 or something. Yeah. And I think the source of its strength has been conflicting narratives such that the audience has to invest in this or this, you know, and yeah. like some, some of the offshoots like SVU and Criminal Intent and all that, they're less, they're less about conflicting narratives and they're more about how we're going to catch this person whom we know did it, you know, and that's a totally different thing. Or like CSI, which gives you these flashbacks where you know exactly what happened, you know, and that's, that's like, no one, it's like, it's a fun drama, but it doesn't have the narratives buttoned up against each other. And I think as readers and an audience, just as people, we are so fascinated forever with narratives that we have to invest this way or that way. And I think the reason we are is because, the world is a narrative. And if we can learn to parse texts better, then we can learn to understand the world better, you know? Right, for sure. And I think, you know, as a big Law & Order fan, you're right. Some of the most interesting scenes is that is when they're interviewing witnesses and they all have very different understandings of what happened and you're sort of drawn into that to figure it out. And it's not quite saying it's like an unreliable narrator suggests that it's intentional and it like that they're hiding something and it's more just that their perspective is just different yeah yeah and really i mean it's it's really kind of promoting the idea that truth isn't stable and i don't think i don't think there really is certainty there's certainty for this moment there's certainty for that moment but um i think law and order lives in that space so so well and i love love love, i love living there myself as well yeah so other than jade who was your favorite character to write oh letha probably um i I wonder if that's the reason i did multiple points of view and reaper (laughs) i wanted to see what letha thinks what she says you know i wanted to see the world nice because um you know jade in my heart is a chainsaw cast letha as the perfect final girl because she matches up with jade's kind of conception of what a final girl should be which of course disallows herself from being a final girl um, sure it's, she has a flawed conception but the whole world has a flawed conception of final girls you know um but letha in her head like when we are listening to her thoughts um she is really and truly compassionate you know she is actually a wonderful person at the same time she's flawed. she's flawed yeah she's not perfect um she presents a perfect like um not really a facade but an exterior and um and that's what people see but if they could check in her head then they would see someone they could actually identify with because she's having a lot of the same issues everyone else is yeah i i love letha she's probably my favorite character and she's yeah. just even from her introduction in um my heart is a chainsaw and like you said, like Jade has this idea of what a final girl is and puts that on Letha. And yet it's always Jade that we see making it through these books. And I love it. (laughs) So when you started My Heart is a Chainsaw, was it always intended to be a trilogy? No, it wasn't. It did not become a trilogy until very, very late in the game. Um, what happened was Joe Monty at Saga bought it and we were editing it and we went through it over and over and over again, you know? And finally, like right near the end, he he said, you know, this thing you're doing at the end where every single person dies, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> and I was like, I know it's a bummer. This is Hamlet. It's a tragedy. And he's like, yeah, I don't think the readers wants to invest like eight hours of their time just to be let down, you know? And and I was, and I, of course, being a stubborn author, I'm like, I've been working on this novel for so long, you know, and I know, yeah. I know these characters, I know this world, I know how the slasher works. And um, I do, but at the same time, 
um, when you're working with a smart, capable editor, you have to trust that editor because they're not trying to ruin your book. They're trying to make your book better, you know? And, and so though I wasn't invested at the moment in Joe's proposition to not kill everyone, <laughs> I thought I owed him the respect of giving it a shot, you know? Okay. And so I went in and I wrote a different ending. I was like, and it's saying, and I was like, oh, wow, Joe is a hundred percent right. You know, I'm, what if everybody didn't die? And then when I realized there were people stumbling out of this massacre still, they could be stumbling into the next iteration of mm-hmm. the trilogy. And so that's the point at which it became um, a trilogy, you know, and that's when I told Joe and my agent, hey, this is a trilogy. And I kind of pretended like it always had been, but it hadn't been. <laughs> Well, the truth is out now on the podcast, so can't take it back. Um, <laughs> no, actually, that that's that. I'm going to skip ahead a couple of questions I had, yeah. so uh, which will tie into this. So I've read that your favorite horror franchise is Final Destination, which, yes, I love that. I don't think they get enough appreciation, yeah. Yeah. but that um, you believe that the best slasher of all time is Scream, which is my yeah. personal favorite franchise. Oh, great, great. Um, and so... In this idea of a trilogy, I what I love about the Scream franchise is how they like set up the rules and mm-hmm. in the first one. And then I love when they go to Hollywood and there's yeah. like a videotape from the dead with like new rules. <laughs> uh, no, that's and, like, so like how, you know, like when it comes to like setting up rules in a book that was not intended to be a trilogy yeah. and now is, yeah. you know, was there any sort of shift or changes that happened during any of the editing processes for these, this trilogy? Yeah. I mean, well, number one, I was keeping Randy's dictums that he lays down <laughs> and number two in mind, you know, this, yeah. has, to, this has to be bloodier. It's more over the top, you know? <laughs> and, and so the, I had to make sure that it did that. Um, but um but yeah, no, for sure that that stuff is at the very front of my mind, you know. Um, as for how it changed, you know, I think the the biggest way, I think it changed before the editing. It was in the conceptual stages, because like I say, I was just coming off of a reread of Lonesome Dove, which kind of informed mm-hmm. the, the form of this. But as for how trilogies situate themselves within the trilogy, I mean, with how second books situate themselves inside a trilogy, I went back to what I think are the two best. Um, seconds in a trilogy ever the two towers and empire strikes back and yes. uh, i just i watched those very very closely and just looking at all the all the moments and the emotional registers and the overarching narrative and how this contributes to the bigger story but it's its own contained story at the same time and uh, i really really looked to the very ending of both of those and i understood that it's got to be a victory but it's a very qualified victory it's a victory that inheres doom you know yes and, um and and so i was like that's what i gotta do and i went i mean i I say I watched them, but I also went and read some critical books on Empire Strikes Back because I thought because academics come up with some brilliant stuff. And and I thought maybe they see something I didn't see, you know, so I read a few of those books and they informed me in different ways. And um, and, you know, what I what I kind of learned from Scream 2, as far as second the trilogy goes, is that um, you can't protect the deck crew too much. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to like um, you've got to make the stakes real and to make the stakes real not everybody gets to live sadly enough yeah Yeah. no I'm glad you mentioned um Empire Strikes Back and and the Two Towers I love sequels in a trilogy there's something about that middle movie if done well um I've personally always wanted to write a book called The Sequel Strikes Back just about sequels (laughs) oh that'd be nice I guess 
I guess most people most people will say Godfather Two is the best one ever. Uh, Godfather Two. I admittedly love Back to the Future Two yeah, so over over the original. Yeah. Um, there's just there's just something about again those like you said the stakes. Like you have to heighten those stakes. We have these characters. We know this world. We know. But then to Randy's rules, like it has to be bloodier. It has to be. be. Yeah, yeah. You know, my one of my probably my favorite dynamic of all in the slasher, it's um it's kind of like a meta dynamic because like when you have a Halloween or a Friday thirteenth, these super low budget indie things that happen to hit a vein and they just blow up and take over the world, such that the studio and the market are like, we don't care if you have a sequel plan or not, there's gonna be a sequel. You know? Right. And yes. I, I, I love that because the first story is self-contained and it tells itself all it needs to tell. But nevertheless, because of money, there needs to be a second one. And um and so they bring in a different creative group and they like attach a foot pump to the story and they pump it up and they come up with they find the smallest speck of leftovers and they make that into a whole universe, you know? Yes. And I love that dynamic. And I wanted Don't Fear the Reaper to feel a little bit like that, you know? Yeah, I think it does. Well, and <laughs> I'll also say that you dedicated Don't Fear the Reaper to Wes Craven. Mm-hmm. And My Heart as a Chainsaw was dedicated to Deborah Hill, who was a film producer and screenwriter, best known for her work with John Carpenter. Yeah. What is it about these two particular horror filmmakers that had such an impact on you? You know, with Deborah Hill, like with with Halloween 78, it's an iconic, you know, amazing film that made a genre kind of, you know, um, started the whole slasher boom of the the golden age of the, the slasher. But um, John Carpenter, who he gets all the credit and he deserves credit. He, he's mm-hmm. an amazing filmmaker and storyteller. However, I feel like Deborah Hill is often pushed to the side in that discussion, you know, and I think without Deborah Hill, um, right, specifically doing all the dialogue of Lori and her friends and making them real people that we can care about, they they feel like actual high school girls with their, yes. their back and forths. Um, without that, I think Halloween has no beating heart, you know, and mm. and so we kind of credit John Carpenter with giving birth to the golden age of the slasher, but I think Deborah Hill deserves just as much credit for it, you know, I mean, John, I mean, John Carpenter is a director, so he had, he was able to compose these frames and do the pacing and all that stuff, but none of that matters if you don't have real people at the center yeah. of it. Deborah Hill provided those real people, and I'm for so, sure. so thankful to her, and Wes Craven, um, I mean, he's just a giant on the horror landscape, of course, yeah. but I always, I love to watch interviews. Like a, like a, I recently read a book of interviews with him. I just loved it. He's such a like erudite guy and such a kind, compassionate person who happens to kill like 80 people in a movie. You know? <laughs> and I, I, lo- I love that. Um, and for my money, nobody else is as good in a tight hallway as Wes Craven was. He can do that tension so well. Like you can see it in Scream 4, where that character who's wearing the camera, he's live blogging. Yes. Uh-huh. Just walk on a porch and, and Wes Craven, just with a hanging plant, makes that the scariest moment, you know? And the only person I've really encountered at the, at the box office who can do that just as well as Lee Janiak. She really has that down too. She did the um, Fear Street movies, you know? Oh, okay. She, yes. Yeah. She understands something. I don't really understand how it's done. I think these directors just, it's a, it's a I mean, it's a combination of, what angles you film at and then how you cut it together, of course, you right. know, and I guess the score, I mean, everything contributes, but um, I, don't, I don't know how they do it, but those two people can do it really, really, really well. 
Right. Um, so we were talking about this concept of a final girl a little bit ago, and I just want to hear sort of your thoughts on just this idea of a final girl and sort of what she represents in a horror franchise. Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, I guess, and I haven't thought this all the way through, but I think there's final girls and there's survivor girls, Mm. you know, final girls to me are local to the slasher where survivor girls are, in all of horror often yeah you know, the survivor girl doesn't necessarily have to be a woman either i think a guy can be a final girl we we don't call him the final boy because it's it's a final girl <laughs> but, right um, but um they are like in the slasher particularly the final girl is the um kind of the silver bullet to the slasher her um her it's not her purity that makes her um be able to like you know sever his achilles heel or whatever it is his achilles tendon but um um it's that um she transforms she starts she usually starts out kind of reserved you know like like laurie and halloween her friends are going out to party and she's like i've got responsibilities i gotta watch out for these kids for this night you know and and it's not about like sex and drugs it's not nearly anything as conservative as that like like john carpenter says michael doesn't um, kill people while they're having sex to punish them he kills them while they're having sex because they're naked and tangled in sheets so they're a lot easier to kill right <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah I, don't, I never i never subscribed to that version of slashers that it's a punishment of teenage sins that doesn't really track to me but um um the final girl is the one of her peer group who is she actually just has an arc, you know, she yeah. trans, like Jade says, she, the violence that this slasher terrorizes her with all her friends dropping all around her, her pets, her family, her teachers, everybody um, that makes her withdraw into a chrysalis, but then she slices her way out as a, per, a different person, you know, or I say a different person. It's more like she's always had this heart inside her, but this horror experience makes her bring that to the outside, you know, right. and, discovers that she has strength in herself that she never thought she had you know and i love love that dynamic i think that's a wonderful lesson for the whole world to take because we all think that um like if we encounter a bear that we're just going to give up and let it eat our head you know (laughs) but um but what if instead of that you fought you know yeah listed on yourself You, you you told the world that i am important enough and you're wrong enough that I'm going to resist with everything I got, you know, and it's, to me, it's not necessarily about whether you win or lose. I guess Kevin in the woods says that too, right? It's not about where the final girl lives or dies, you know, but it's about whether you fight, you know? And, um, and I think we can all take that lesson. If we all push back against bullies, then the world becomes a better place. And that's what slashers are. They're just bullies, you know? Sure. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. hello and welcome to novel conversations a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, 
We tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, so on that, do you have any thoughts about Nev Campbell not returning to Scream 6? I mean, my hope is that it's just a, a faint, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that they've that they've done a big marketing campaign and she's going to have a secret cameo. I think <laughs> <laughs> but uh we see her walking with another stroller in new york city with, yeah like, is her husband is her is it c thomas hell from four i think that's that, 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 yes yeah yeah that'd be great to see him but <laughs> but um but i kind of doubt if she shows up really i think we probably would have had something leaked on accident you know um but no i miss her a lot of course um like you know not me on elm street kind of corrected course after the first one had Heather or had Nancy in it. And then the second one was Jesse. Then they brought Nancy back for the third, you know, as the, somehow she went through a whole master's program really quickly. <laughs> uh, Magic of movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, um, and, but you see that in alien too, you know, Ripley is always, she's, she's comes back again and again and again, whereas Friday the 13th tends to trade final girls over and over and over. Tommy yeah. Jarvis is in, I guess, three of them, maybe, is it three, maybe four, but, um, um, oh, and I guess, um, what's her name? Jamie, Jamie was in three or four of the Halloweens, the middle yeah. Halloweens too. Yeah. Um, um, but as for losing Nev, yeah, it's regrettable. But at the same time, if you look at this most recent Scream, which I guess we're recalling Scream 5 now, um, her her role in that was really not that big. You know, yeah. it, was, it was really um, what, Tara and Tara's little sister's movie, I think. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, um, and so t- it really kind of feels natural for um, Sydney to f- take one step back. And that's just going to make an eventual return from her later on in the franchise hit harder, I think. That's true. Yeah. And hopefully that's she- true. Hopefully, gets she gets the payday she deserves being right. the franchise, you know. Yeah. Um, but I do have really strong suspicions that um, this may be the last we see of Gail. You know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gail feels like one of those characters who has survived probably more often than she yeah. should. Yeah, and she gets hurt quite a lot. But yes, she's- <laughs> she does. She does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, just hope, I just hope she has, if she dies in this one in New York City, I hope it's a good death. You yeah. Know? That's what she deserves. Yeah. She, she deserves really, a good death. Yes. Good and hopefully nobody cuts her bangs like three. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Those were so bad. I just, <laughs> it they were so bad. I don't yeah. know what was happening there. <laughs> it'd, be nice. it'd be nice if, well, I guess it can't happen, but it'd be cool if Parker Posey came back to be involved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm curious, you know, we, this idea of final girl and, and Jade sort of not wanting to take up that mantle, so to speak, because she doesn't really think she kind of deserves it. And obviously without spoiling anything, is there anything, I guess, beyond just like rules of slasher that she believes, is there something else that's stopping her from seeing herself in that role? You know, I'm just now thinking of this too. I don't think it's on the page, but um, from as much as she has watched and lived in slashers, she's got to think that if she becomes a slasher girl, then she's kind of inviting herself in 
for installment after installment of these violent episodes, you know? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so if, if I could you, see that. Yeah. And who, yeah. Wants to sign, who wants to sign up for that? You know, every new friend group you make, they're all going to get massacred. <laughs> I mean, okay. That actually, I can buy that. <laughs> She's like, if I'm not the final girl, then it's not following me to wherever yeah. I go after this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, I can buy that. Like, you know, I love those detective shows like Columbo or, or Monk or whatever, when they go on vacation to Napa Valley or for a cruise and murders follow them. They have to solve a murder. Yeah. On that's that's kind of how it is for a final girl. They go to college, they go to whatever, and they're a slasher thing happening wherever they are, you know, which has got to be a bummer. That's true. It's like with Murder, She Wrote. And I'm like, what small town is this? Why are people yeah. coming here? <laughs> oh, no. here? Yeah, isn't that called, what's that called? The Cabot Cove Dilemma or something? Like, how, yeah. can, they, how can a place with a population of 1,400 have That's... a murder every week? Correct, correct. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, so clearly you are as informed about slasher films and horror films as your character, Jade. What is it about that genre that you like so much? You know, um. I guess I keyed on them early in junior, I keyed, keyed on them in junior high, watching them with um, a group of people. One of them had an in with a video store clerk who, if we went directly to the video store right after school at 3.15 or whatever on a Friday, they would sneak us like six slashers in clamshells. And if we took them home and had them back by opening on Saturday, we could get them for free. You know, the free was a really big, important part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, And so we would go to my friend's house way out in the woods and he had a separate garage from his house his dad had set up a ratty old couch with a little 13 inch TV with a VCR. And we just watched those and we would, we knew the movie so well, we would speak all the lines and act things out. It was a big fun thing. But then about two in the morning, my friend's dad, he had a Freddy glove. He would get liquored up enough to come out and scrape it on the garage door, which number one sounds terrible, but we knew it was him. But at the same time, we didn't trust him remotely, you know? We didn't know what he was going to do. He yeah. was the kind of guy who would, you didn't, you just didn't trust him. And um, and so we would explode at the side door of that garage and run through the night. And if we jumped in the water of the creek, we were safe. I don't know why that was a rule we came up with, but that's also the rule in chainsaw. If you get under the yeah. water, you're safe. You yeah. know? Um, and that, that feeling of running away and swaying my back so his blade fingers don't touch me and like tears coming back from my eyes, but my face smiling so wide that it hurt. Like that's the feeling of a slasher for me. You know, it's, it's a two-sided coin of, of um, like humor and horror. And the slasher just flips it up in the air and just goes humor, horror, like laugh, scream, laugh, scream, laugh, scream. And I think that up at that laugh, scream, laugh, scream, laugh, scream dynamic is specifically why I am just forever drawn to the slasher. Well, that, and I idolize final girls. I think they are, yeah. are you know, like, like Jade says, they're the vessel we keep our hope in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, I, I like that you mentioned video stores. One yeah. of the things I, one of the things that has come out of this streaming era is mm-hmm. the loss of video stores. And yeah. in that the loss of that kid who works a video store in the movies who knows all of these rules like i'm that that's always one of my favorite character tropes is that kid at the video store who you go to who's able to pull all the movies and like i really miss that because it doesn't it doesn't work these days the same way in in the streaming world it doesn't quite but you know 
uh, on Shutter, you can it's it's probably the closest analog we can get because they'll have guest curators come in to do a collection of ten or twelve movies. It's like mm-hmm. it's like it's like Ethan's picks on the back wall, you know that, that yeah. kind of yeah um, yeah. But you're totally right. Um, I mean, and of course, like where do we get? We don't have any more Quentin Tarantinos. We don't have people working in the minds of the video stores, right? You know? Um, but also there's it. It can also metastasize, like in um, what's that Seinfeld episode where um, Elaine always picks the pics of some video store clerk and he obsesses over her and mails her a play button off his VCR and all that stuff, you know, cracks me up. Yeah. But no, I miss like right now, the way, like when we click on one thing in a streaming service, like uh, if we click on um, Halloween three, then it'll say also liked, you know, yeah. or it'll, it'll throw up some, some, the algorithm shoots up some stuff that's associated, but um, you're totally right. It's not always the stuff that's associated, which should be the next thing. The, the, the glory of a video store is the completely random things that you yes. stumble upon. And you're so fascinated with the cover art that you think this really can't happen in the movie, but maybe, you know, and, and it usually doesn't, but it's still fun to find out, you know? So have you seen any recent horror films that you're really excited about that Mm-hmm. we're fun oh you know just last night i watched the menu and that movie is amazing that is on my list i think i just yeah. saw it saw, speaking of streaming i think it's yeah. available now it is. and i was planning yeah. on watching it okay that's good to know <laughs> oh so good it's so it's just really really high, high quality stuff um i think my the scariest horror film i watched in 2022 was smile i think mm. smile was really disturbing in a good way barbarian really impressed me a whole lot i loved halloween ends i love deadstream deadstream does the comedy horror thing as well as like anything i think club dread evil dead all those um um let me think you know i really liked last year's texas chainsaw massacre because leatherface finally became a slasher he's always been a cannibal and all the variations yeah. he became a slasher and i'm like i can finally believe in you dude you know <laughs> <I'm> so happy <laughs> uh, yeah. well um Going back to Don't Fear the Reaper, elk play a significant role in both Don't Fear the Reaper and your book, The Only Good Indians. And I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about what draws you to that animal in particular. You know, it's probably that since I was since I was 12 years old, I've been out in the field with my dad and my uncles and my cousins going after elk. And they've always been the um the goal because like deer are fairly easy to find when you're hunting and moose are not nearly as common, but they're not hard to hunt. Cause when you mm-hmm. see a moose, you just like walk up to it and shoot it. And it really doesn't seem very fair to me, you know? <laughs> but, uh, whereas like a whitetail, well, you'll, you'll jump a whitetail and it'll bounce off for 30 yards, but it'll stop like a, like a cottontail rabbit and look back at you. Like, what are you? And that's not that, it's not that hard a trick to, to get some meat that way. But elk, elk have been so hunted for so long that they have become super wily. They are so mm. hard to get. Um, they're just so smart and so capable. And I respect them immensely. Um, and also, as for why elk are in this um, trilogy, I think it's just that it's Idaho at 8,000 feet. And there's, I don't see how there could not be elk, you know? Um, yeah. And so, but yeah, I mean, there's, and I mean, not to give any, not to give too much away, but there may be an elk in the third installment as well. (laughs) Right. Not spoiling anything. Not spoiling anything. (laughs) Uh, We should say that in Don't Fear the Reaper, there is sort of a a subplot story Mm -hmm. that kind of starts off with the serial killer, um, Dark Mill South. And 
as someone who is so invested in in horror and slashers, what was it like for you to kind of create this own the serial killer from scratch? Like, what was your process for that? No, that well, the the first part of the process was the name, and um, I, I get the name from Jerry Reed's song Amos Moses. I've always been like in the song, he sings like he he says this line two or three times. A guy named Doc Millsap raised up a kid that could eat up his weight in groceries. But he says it really fast in, in kind of his like Cajun way. And it, I, I've, for my whole life, I've misheard Doc Millsap as mm. Dark Mill South. And so that's, I've always had that name bouncing around in my head and I finally found a place to use it. So I was quite thrilled. But um, yeah, like activating Dark Mill South, you know, making him a real serial killer. Cause I, I agree with you, he's a serial killer, not a, not necessarily a slasher. Um, right. Um, it, it's almost like, coming out of the pandemic as we all, I mean, I'm not pretending the pandemic is over, but we've been enduring the pandemic for what, three yes. years or something. Um, um, at this, what's happened during the pandemic for so many people is that true crime fascination has just really bloomed. And that's usually focused on serial killers, you know? And, mm-hmm. and even if you don't directly watch those um, documentaries or read those books, then it still percolates up to you, you know? And, you may be like too scared to actually read about serial killers, but nevertheless, they're in the media all around you, you know? And, and so I think I probably caught a twinge of that, you know, a, a little bit. Um, and of course, everybody wants to um, have their Hannibal Lecter or their Francis Dollarhide or, you know, or whatever. Sure. And, um, and I don't presume that I can ever make somebody as cool as Hannibal Lecter. I, I might could do a Francis Dollarhide, but, um, but um, I, I'm always, I'm drawn to those serial killers like, you know, what, what Rob Zombie did with his Halloween um, two movies was he made Michael Myers into this big hulking dude who was actually um, physically formidable. You know, like mm-hmm. Michael Myers, John Carpenter's Michael Myers isn't that big a dude. He's like 5'10", 5'11". He's strong enough to hold people up by their necks and all but Who knows how he, I guess he does that with evil power. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. But, um, I, I, I kind of, I always like the idea of someone with bad impulses who is also physically capable of implementing those bad influences you know and that's kind of what dark male self was and is for me i guess i hadn't really considered how the true crime popularity really has grown a lot during the pandemic yeah and i'm not quite sure what to account for that is it just like being at home and i don't like that's a good point though I think um, um, like all these amateur sleuths having podcasts or books or whatever, or documentaries, all this stuff, like processing through the clues, you know, to mm-hmm. try to reach some truth um, is people trying to order their world, you know, like th- I think that they can feel the world crumbling around them. And so they think I'll just, I'll just get this one little corner in order, you know, yeah. and, and true crime is a good way to do it. Cause you can assemble the clues in a certain way, which leads you to a revelation, you know, and relate you to the feeling of a revelation anyways. I don't know. I don't know how many of these amateur sleuths actually solve anything, but it does happen every once in a while. It does. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to be thinking about that now from <laughs> now on. <laughs> um, well, I just have one final question for you, which is what do you hope readers take away from reading? Don't fear the reaper. I hope that they believe in final girls, you know, I mean, if they come out of my heart as a chainsaw, hopefully they already do. So hopefully this yeah. just resubscribes them to the the idea of final girls. But um, I also hope it gets them 
invested in the community of Proof Rock and Indian mm-hmm. Lake and all of that. Um, you know, I, to me, don't fear the reap. Like, my heart is a chainsaw. There's a way to look at it in which it was engaging um, gentrification. You know, um, all these one that's like one percent of the one percent moving to the most gated community in America and kind of their influence corrupting the side town that they use as a staging area. You know, that's kind of done with. I can't do the same. I wouldn't do the same thing twice. But four years later, it seems like what keeps expressing itself in different ways through all these points of view is how do we deal with trauma? You know, mm-hmm. how do you deal with having lived through something like that? How does it change you as a person, as a community? And how do you move forward? You know, and that's what Jade is specifically is grappling with. Um, how to deal with this trauma. And I mean, and I don't know if I have answers, but I, th- I don't think it's novelist um, duty to provide answers. I think what we really do is we articulate questions and we start discussions, you know? And so I guess that's what I hope is that people come out of Don't Fear the Reaper asking themselves, how would I deal with this kind of trauma? And they can also look at other people who have suffered trauma and perhaps be more empathetic about what they're going through, you know? Yeah, for sure. I love it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast chat with me. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for talking with me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.